Good morning. Oh, it's good to be back. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have this opportunity to study. Our hearts uh, yearn for you. We ask that your spirit will dwell in our hearts and mind this morning. Bring us into a unity of love and, and harmony with you and your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number 13 in our quarterly Garments of Grace, Clothing Imagery in the Bible. And the lesson title this week is Clothed in Christ. Second paragraph in our, in our quarterly, it says this. A fundam- fundamental law of our natural world, at least our fallen natural world, is that objects tend toward decay, toward disorder. What do things left alone do? Increase in energy, order, and structure, or decrease decay and move toward disorder? The answer is obvious. We see it all around us, and even in ourselves, for instance, our aging bodies. Didn't have to mention that, did he? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Alrighty. So, question for you guys. Why do we see this? Uh, this is called, by the way, the second law of thermodynamics, that thing tends toward disorder, entropy, the law of entropy. If we don't put energy into a system, it, it slowly decays. Walk away from your house and leave your house for the next 10 years and come back. It won't look as good when you come back if you haven't done anything for 10 years to your house. Things decay over time. Question is why? Did God design plants to die, people to age, houses to deteriorate? Did he design tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes? Did he design death? Or are these all manifestations of the law of sin and death? Of what happens when we separate from God? So I'm suggesting something, yes. He designed for his energy to be constantly instilled. Ah. So, the, so part of that law is that it takes energy to maintain it, and as long as you have a connection with God, then there isn't the decay. This is the hypothesis I'm going to suggest, exactly, well stated, that God created everything, and that he is the source of all life, all energy, and that he has designed that he would continually be flowing out through Here's what it says in Colossians 1, 15-17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Do, do you think this supports this idea that we have life as we're connected to God? And so the suggestion, my hypothesis, what Wendell has said, is that God designed the universe to sustain itself as it's connected to him. As we disconnect from God, and the further disconnected we become, the more disorganized, the more decay, the more death, the more uh, chaos that we see. That's a hypothesis. What do you think? Let's, let's, let's see if we can't explore this a little further. This is out of a book you might have heard of called Education, page 99. It was the last time anybody read Education in here. Anybody ever read it recently? Yeah, a long time ago. So a good book. This is what it says. Upon all created things is seen the impress of the deity. Nature testifies of God. The susceptible mind, brought in contact with the miracle and mystery of the universe, cannot but recognize the working of infinite power. Not by its own inherent energy, does the earth produce its bounties and year by year continue its motion around the sun? An unseen hand guides the planets in the circuit of the heavens. A mysterious life pervades all nature, a life that sustains the unnumbered worlds throughout immensity that lives in the insect atom which floats in the summer breeze. 
that wings the flight of the swallow and feeds the young ravens with which cry, that brings the bud to blossom and the flowers to fruit. The same power that upholds nature is working also in man. The same great laws that guide alike the star and the atom control human life. The laws that govern the heart's action, regulating the flow of the current of life to the body, are the laws of the mighty intelligence that has the jurisdiction of the soul. From him all life proceeds. Only in harmony with him can be found its true sphere of action. For all the objects of his creation, the condition is the same. A life sustained by receiving the life of God. A life exercised in harmony with the Creator's will. To transgress his law, physical, mental, or moral, is to place oneself out of harmony with the universe to introduce discord, anarchy, and ruin. Does that say it pretty clearly? Have you ever considered the law of second law of thermodynamics? That things tend towards disorder and decay if you're not putting energy in as a manifestation of what sin has done. Have you ever seen that before? That things should never be decaying in this universe. Would they ever decay if sin was not introduced? No. This is what this is a manifestation of. So in the next paragraph, it quotes Isaiah 51.6. And the earth shall wax old like a garment. And the earth shall wax old like a garment. Why? Why will the earth wax old like a garment? Think the implications through. And is it just the earth or does this explain also why we age and die? So why is it waxing old like a garment? What's the implication? How do we understand this? How do we work this idea into our understanding of eschatology? That over time, the earth is waxing old like a garment. You, yes? The earth is the only planet that's out of harmony with the, the way God created things. There, absolutely. And can you, in your mind's eye, get a history of the earth? Can you see if it was like a diagram, earth as God created it? Earth after sin, but before the flood. Earth after the flood. Earth 4,000, 5,000 years later. Are you seeing in your mind's eye, can you kind of track how things have changed over time? Is the earth wearing old? Like a garment. Yeah. This is out of uh, Mount of Blessing, page 61. God is the fountain of life. And we can have life only as we are in communion with him. Separated from God, existence may be ours for a little time, but we do not possess life. Only through the surrender of our will to God is it possible for him to impart life to us. It says in 1 Timothy 6.16, if you want a Bible reference for that, that God alone is immortal. God alone has immortality. And it's only in connection with him that we actually experience life. So what, do you, what are your thoughts about this? Is it, is it, are you seeing a connection between the spiritual and the physical? Are you seeing a connection between science and scripture? You know, you know recently uh, uh, it was suggested that people shouldn't come to my class because uh, I blend science and scripture. I'm not kidding. It was, it was put out there by a leader in our church that 
that they shouldn't have me speak because I blend science and scripture. What does the scripture say in Romans chapter 1 that God's divine nature and eternal qualities are seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse? Who is the author of science? God. God. Absolutely. And rightly understood. And this is what we're trying to bring home today. So you can see a direct connection between the, the physical creation, why decay is happening because we're severed from God, and the spiritual, why we decay in heart, mind, and, why, and what sin is doing to the creation. There's a direct connection between those two. Listen to this particular description on the Signs of the Times, December 12, 1895. But in the transgression of man, both the father and son were dishonored. Man committed sin, and sin is transgression of the law, which is holy, just, and good. How do you hear those words when you hear transgression of the law, which is holy, just, and good? Do you hear it as breaking a rule? Do you hear it as transgressing the design protocols upon which God constructed life to operate? Which is it? Breaking a rule? Breaking the construction protocols? An operating system on your computer? Has anybody ever had a virus in their software? And only two people in this room have ever had a virus in their software? Wow. How does your computer run once you get a virus in your software? Does the operating system start glitching up and all kinds of problems happen? We have introduced, we have transgressed the programming, the law upon which that system was designed to operate has been transgressed when you introduce a virus. Yes? Okay, so listen to these next words. Very next words in this quotation from Signs of the Times. Through sin, the temple of God, which he had built for his indwelling and glory, was reduced to ruin, was fallen, and in decay. What what temple was that? Think, and we'll come back to that, but hopefully your mind is putting the pieces of the, of the inspired record together and you're thinking, 2,300 days and the temple shall be cleansed. Hmm. Anyway, Satan beguiled the holy pair into their own destruction and introduced, listen to this, introduced an element of character that was antagonistic to God and to their fellow creatures. You got a virus in your software. An element that was antagonistic was introduced where? Into the temple of God. What temple? A a building made out of, uh, you know, heavenly brick and mortar? Or into the mind, the soul spirit temple where God dwells. Before the entrance of sin, the hearts of God's children had been filled with love toward their creator, and they were in harmony with his will. But upon yielding to the tempter, a warring element began to work in the human agent. Even the earth itself showed the curse of transgression, and signs of enmity appeared. Darkness covers the earth like a pall of death and will continue to shroud the glory of God until death is swallowed up in victory. In the creation of God, before the entrance of sin, every part of nature was in perfection. God had nothing to take down as unnecessary to his plan. He needed to set in operation no power by which to dispossess. He needed to inaugurate no opposing force. But through the calamity of sin, the work of disintegration was begun. The work of decay, disintegration, was begun. And the beautiful temple of God's building was defiled and laid in ruins. But God no longer, God no longer was a dweller in the heart of man. To oppose and bring to naught the work of the enemy, the promise was given. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Are you hearing? Tell me what you're hearing in this. Yeah. Maybe 
hopefully I won't be too diversionary, but um, God's temple is wherever he lives. So to, in that same setting, in that same reading, if you say, okay, the earth is God's temple, you know, our hearts are God's temple, and wherever God was designed to be the central focus, that is his temple. In Revelation, there's no more temple there because that's where God lives. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to pick that thread up. We're going we're gonna to dissect it, okay? You've thrown out a hypothesis that wherever God dwells is his temple. The scripture, uh, well, this, this passage would suggest that um, through sin, the temple of God, which he had built for his indwelling and in glory, was reduced to ruin and fall. And he goes on to say that um, the beautiful temple of God's building was defiled and laid in ruins. God no longer was a dweller in the heart of man. Right. Okay? That speaks specifically to the heart of man, but also the whole earth is decaying. And it, yes. it was designed as God's temple as well. well. Wait a second. There's a hypothesis there that the earth was designed as God's temple. What evidence do we have to support that hypothesis? See, I don't believe that the earth was designed as God's temple. I don't believe that. I believe the earth was designed as a habitat for man, and man was designed as God's temple. The, um, if you look at him as the creator yes. and um, sustainer, and this is, this is where he lives, just like in the, in the sanctuary, in the, the children of Israel, there was a physical bu- building where he was. The earth and his people are both his dwelling place. Well, this is one of the hypotheses in 1844 that the earth was the sanctuary. And... I, I, and I haven't found any evidence that, in fact, the earth was a temple or sanctuary for the Lord. I have found that, the, that God dwells in his intelligent beings. Because the law of the Lord, remember, where, in, in the center of the sanctuary, what is it is kept at the heart of the center of the sanctuary? Was the, was the covenant box, and in the heart of the covenant box was kept the law. Right? In the new covenant, where is the law kept? I wore my law where? in the hearts and minds. Further, what kind of law is it that is being kept here? The law of love is not only in our hearts, it is the template upon which the trees live. Yes. You know, everything lives. And so God's love is truly the base upon which... Absolutely, absolutely. Universe, right? Absolutely. No, he created everything to operate in harmony with his law. Absolutely. The whole universe reveals this law. There's no question. But the law is a law that is a living law. It can only be fully understood in living creatures. It can't be understood fully that's in... A, that's supreme evidence of his law. Right. But his law is in everything. Well, his law is the construction protocols, the templates, the building blocks upon which things were built. There's no question about that. But... Where does God, as an intimate being, a lover of, 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 I guess, a lover, where does he dwell? Can love exist um, between you and, your, and the chair you're sitting in? Or the, the house you live in? Or the car you drive? Can love exist with a non-living, non-sentient entity? Material? Matter? No. And so the law of love can only be fully realized and experienced uh, in the union of intelligent free beings. And so this is why the human being was designed, as well as the angels and other intelligences of the universe, to be a dwelling place for God where he dwells by his spirit in a bond of unity and, and love. 
And uh, as I look in the book of Job, and I see in the first chapter of the book of Job, or that council was gathered of the sons of God from all over the universe, I think, in my mind, I get an image of what the true temple of God is. And we talk about how um, Peter mentions in Peter that we are, are living stones built into a house for the Lord that the true temple of God is a living um, entity, if you will, constructed out of intelligent beings who are loyal and faithful to God. And he dwells in us through his spirit. And, and, the, and the inanimate nature, which also reveals his law, was built for the habitation and sustenance of the living creatures to where he dwells with his spirit. This is how I see it anyway. So it's a good point to bring up. Um, but I want to get back to the question of the temple. For instance, could inanimate nature... Let, let, let's, let's take this question further. Could inanimate nature defile itself with sin? Could the earth be defiled with sin without Adam and Eve choosing to rebel? Them, to rebel? No. The earth was in dominion, or Adam and Eve had dominion over the earth, and it was only through Adam that the earth... The, the rest of the earth could not have ever been defiled unless Adam and Eve had chosen that, that process. And so inanimate nature um, is only um, the lesson book through which we are taught the consequences of deviation. That's what we're talking about now today, this second law of thermodynamics, how, how this world has been severed from the rest of God's kingdom and universe. And as I've said sometimes, we, what we see on earth is an artificial uh, environment. I like to say we are on um, artificial life support. A patient in the ICU on a ventilator being kept alive artificially. This earth is in a bubble protected by God, allowing time for Christ to come, uh, for the plan of redemption to be implemented, and for each of us to come back into unity with him. But this, this world is not the way God designed the world to run. So what was the principle that was introduced into man that we read about here uh, an indwelling, uh, let's see, uh, introduce an element of character that was antagonistic to God and their fellow creatures. What was it that was introduced into man that was antagonistic? Selfishness. selfishness. There's no question about it. All sin is selfishness, it says in, in uh, Workers' Bolton, September 9, 9-202. And Great Controversy, page 492, says, Our only definition of sin is given in the Word of God. It is transgression of the law. No. Some people will stop there and say, yep, it's breaking those ten. Now listen to the next phrase that follows it. It's not even a different sentence. It's in the same sentence. It is the outworking of a principle at war with the great law of love, which is the foundation of the divine government. God's government is built upon the principle of beneficence, upon the principle of giving, other-centered regard, uh, and sin is a principle that wars against that, the principle of selfishness, that we are now all born infected with. So God is the source of life. The law of love is the law upon which all life in the universe is built to operate. All nature reveals this law. In, in earth, this law actually has an antagonistic law, the law of survival of the fittest, the second law of thermodynamics. We see the law of sin and death at work in earth, too, as the two principles are warring against each other. Harmony with God means his life, lo, life love, flows through us and upholds and sustains all things. Sin is selfishness, the principle at war with the law of love, a principle that severs this connection and prevents the law, law of love or God's life from flowing through his creation. Therefore, the more sin and rejection of God, the more separation from him, the greater the decay and death. Would you all agree? Yeah. 
Okay. So what would one expect to happen as Satan, as, as the world comes to its close? Do we expect Satan to get more control over the earth? Revelation 7, 1 through 3. An angel came from the east and four angels holding back the four winds saying, hold, hold, hold until the people of God are sealed in their forehead. The servants of God are sealed in their forehead. Now what are these angels holding? The destruction of Satan. Yeah, and, and these angels have also, in Revelation 7, 1 through 3, given a description. Besides the holding, they, these angels had been given a certain power, it says in that, that passage. You know what power they've been given? Power to harm the earth. Now, how does that work? How were they given power to harm the earth? By letting go. Is this part of this law of thermodynamics we're talking about? Is this part of severing away from God? Do you see the connections? Ellen White says she was shown that the judgments of God would not come out from God directly from him, but upon them in this way. They place themselves beyond his protection. He warns, corrects, reproves, points out the only path of safety. Then, if those who have been the special objects of his care will follow their own course, independent of the Spirit of God, after repeated warnings, if they choose their own way, he does not commission his angels to prevent Satan's decided attack upon them. It is Satan's power that is at work at sea and on land, bringing calamity and distress and sweeping off multitudes to make sure of his prey. In storm and tempest, both by sea and land, will be, for Satan has come down with great wrath. Do we understand that when we see hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes and things like this, this is evidence of the sustaining power of God being slowly withdrawn from the earth? Where does God dwell by his spirit on earth? Is it not in the hearts and minds of men? Does God force his way into the hearts and minds of men? No. So what happens when millions and billions of people close their heart to the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is withdrawn from the earth. And as the Holy Spirit is withdrawn on the earth, if God's presence is the sustaining life force on earth, what's going to happen on earth? It's going to, it's going to wax old like a rag, or like, like, the, like the scriptures say, the earth will wear old. That's what's happening. But how about if we look at it in the other way? How about if we come into closer unity with God? We get more intimate with him. We have a closer experience with him. What might that mean? Romans 8.11 says this, And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who also raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. Do you believe that we would have more, better health if we were closer with God? Generally. And I don't mean closer with God. I mean actually physically closer with God. If we could stand in His presence. How about Moses? Moses, it says in Deuteronomy 34, 7, he was 120 years old, yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. 120. Still vibrant and vital. Why did he die then? His strength wasn't gone, his eyes weren't weak. I, I've already need glasses. He, he evidently didn't have that problem. <laughs> He's 120. Why did he die? My thought? I think he died of a broken heart. Because he didn't go to the promised land after 120 years. He stood and saw it, and I think it broke his heart. And it broke his heart because he let God down and misrepresented God to the people, and that broke his heart. You think God just killed him? Not killed him, no. I think God just let him catch his 120 years. 
But his, 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 his uh, strength was not gone. Yeah. The earth is waxing old, but it seems like lately people are getting stronger and bigger and living longer. Compared to, Compared to what? Compared to a hundred years ago. That's a great point. Look at the history of the earth through time. How was it before the flood? How, how, how healthy were people then? In the first several generations after the flood even. And even at the time of Abraham. Compared to even 2,000 years ago yeah. when Jesus was on earth. Yeah, but, like... but what happened after Jesus came? This is the point. What happened after Jesus came? Rejection. There was a counterattack. Paul says in Thessalonians that the man of sin will arise and he will oppose everything and set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Right? This is what the prophecy was. He would set himself, which temple are we talking about? Us. And this has led to what we call the Dark Ages. <laughs> okay? And what were the Dark Ages dark about? Primarily. About God. And then, of course, we understand that in 1844, something else happened. 2300 days, and then the temple, which was the man of sin, set himself up in causing darkness and separation from God, which led to the dark ages and shortening of human life and all this horrible stuff. 1844, the 2020 years, the sanctuary should be cleansed. And there's been a recovery of truth and light about God. And in consequence, what's happening? We're living longer. We're healthier. So as the knowledge of God comes back, we've learned healthier principles of living. And so we're living longer. But at the same time, people are going to be, people are going to be closing their hearts as the two groups, that group in the middle, that lukewarm group is going to be settling either into the truth about God or the truth about the lies about God. And as that happens, the four winds will loosen and Satan will get greater and greater control over the earth and more and more calamities are going to happen. Yes? Well, I have another comment. Uh, as we, when we used to live overseas for 20 years, we would hear of disasters and whenever something happened outside the United States, many people were killed. But a big disaster will happen in the States, and only few people were killed or hurt. And we always commented to ourselves, you know, why is that? And we always thought maybe it's because there are more praying people in the United States. I've heard that my whole life. It's because America was founded on a Christian principle and a Christian nation. And that's why more things are happening to us, is because we're getting away from this connection with God. That's what I'm... Well, there's a, there is a law at work here. There's a law that we're talking about here. As we, God is the source of life. As we're connected to him, we have life. As we sever that connection, things become more chaotic and destructive. Does that mean God is punishing people for disconnecting from him? It's, an it's, an, it's important to recognize the difference because the, the, the typical evangelical TV preachers will get up and say, God was punishing New Orleans with Katrina. Remember? You heard it on TV. For all their wickedness, he punished them. Did he? Or is this the natural way of the universe when we're connected to him, we have the sustaining energy of his presence and blessings that gives life and health and organization and unity and order. And when we are disconnected from him, things start to decay and fall apart. Then what happens when tornadoes hit the Bible Belt? What happens when tornadoes yeah. hit the Bible Belt? It's, the Bible, I mean, you know, here we're connected supposedly. In, are we? Us. <laughs> According to some people, we are, yeah. yeah. I've heard people, many people that come in and stuff, they've said... You know, I cannot believe that God allowed the tornadoes to hit this Bible Belt area. It surprised me. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Second Tim, uh, First Timothy, uh, they have a form of godliness, but deny its power. Mm-hmm. Religiosity and godliness are not the same thing. Uh, claiming, uh, Christ said, you will search the world over 
to find a comfort. When you find him, you make him twice the son of hell as you are. As you are. Or he says in the last days, he will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name, perform miracles in your name. Notice, name of Jesus, not the name of Buddha or Hare Krishna. And he says, get ye hence, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. He's telling us very clearly at the end of time there'll be lots of Christians who don't know Christ. Yes. Also, if you look at this storm system that came through here and it was on the ground for 30-some miles in the evening when people are home, and just in Bradley County there's over 300 homes totally destroyed, and the, the lack of loss of life is surprising to me. God's protection was here. Yeah, you can say you can look at it on both sides of that. I think what we're seeing, and I think there's truth on both sides of it. We are in a war, and we're, right now we're trying to peel back the the uh, uh, peel back the veil and look behind the scenes. Where is God's involvement in this war? Uh, where how do God's laws work in this process? What's happening that uh, allows for more and more of these disasters to occur? The devil goes about like a roaring lion because he knows his time is short. Exactly, exactly. All right, and. Um, Let's jump, I'm going to jump into Friday's lesson just real quick, and then we're going to uh, move, move on to a different portion. But Friday's lesson, just because it kind of deals with this, what we're talking about, it notices in the, in the first paragraph from My Life Today, it, it um, talks about um, how the new earth uh, will come along and the world will be bathed in the light of heaven, the years will move on in gladness, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be seven times hotter than it is now. Now, where does that come from? Just so you know, it's Isaiah 30, verse 26. Isaiah 30, 26. This is Isaiah 30, 26. The moon will shine like the sun, and the sunlight will be seven times brighter, like the light of seven full days, when the Lord binds up the bruises of his people and heals the wounds of the afflicted. This is a prophecy from Isaiah. Question, how could the, the sun be seven times hotter and the moon be as bright as the sun, as close as the moon is to the earth, without destroying it? Ozone. Ozone. Oh, you're moving in the right direction. I actually think this idea supports the, uh, the creationist perspective on age of the earth and, and the flood, and that most of the water we find in our oceans prior to the flood was suspended in a, in a canopy of water around the earth. And the heat from a sun seven times hotter and a moon that burned like the sun would energize that, that, that water and keep it in a form that was suspended above the earth. It was energy coming in that was necessary to maintain the water above the earth. And this is how God designed it. And in that state there would be no polar extremes, so they wouldn't have uh, ice caps on either end of it. The whole earth would be cl climate. And in that state, water above the earth, there would be no tornadoes, there'd be no rain, no thunderstorms, no hurricanes. None of that stuff that we see in the weather going on today would have occurred. And, of course, it didn't rain prior to the flood, did it? No rain, because the oceans weren't there to cause this whole chaotic thing that goes on now. And so we have this, this, per this planet, which has a, a temperate climate anywhere you go, which is wonderful. What happened? I'll tell you a hypothesis, it can't be proven, but one hypothesis is that, in fact, based on this law that we're talking about here today, the law of thermodynamics, things tend toward decay. As we move away from God, his presence is withdrawn, his sustaining energy is removed. Uh, what happens, one hypothesis is, in Genesis 6, how many people are still dwelling place for where God dwells in Genesis 6? One at, at the least, eight at the most, <laughs> according to Genesis 6. Uh, the rest of the people have closed their hearts to the Lord. They were violent, violent all the time. So in that state, God's spirit is withdrawn. His sustaining presence and power is removed. The moon goes out and the sun grows weaker. And the, er, the, the waters come down and the flood comes. God prophesied through Noah it was going to happen because he saw the hearts of men. 
and he uh, had Noah build an ark to protect that group of people, his presence around Noah and his group, protecting them. And after the flood, when now there's only eight people left and God's presence is now dwelling again on earth, um, the sun stops its decay and everything stabilizes because God's presence is here again. This is one theory, one hypothesis. Consistent with... Pardon? Did you come up with that? I did not come up with that hypothesis. Like that. Yeah, um, I, I, I can't say yay or nay on, on whether that's exactly what happened or not, but it does fit the evidence. It is consistent with the evidence, and it's certainly something we wouldn't want to close our minds to. Yes? Where would all the, the creatures of the sea then, what were they created? The creatures of the sea were created uh, in Genesis chapter 1. You said there were no oceans. But they, yeah, no oceans, but there were seas. Rivers? Rivers, seas, lakes. There were, there were water, I mean, Genesis chapter 1, on the fifth day, the fowl and the creatures of the waters were created. And then when there was more water, they just spread out into the more water. Okay? So anyway, I just wanted to mention that as a, as a hypothesis. You think about that. It's a very interesting hypothesis, especially as we anticipate the earth being made new and the sun burning seven times hotter and the moon burning as, as hot as the sun. Uh, Sunday's lesson. First paragraph says that the question of the gospel of salvation, of how we are saved, um, has been a, has been a struggle and have been a question for uh, for Christians since the Protestant Reformation. Has it been? Have we been struggling with questions on how we're saved? How do you think we should interact with people who disagree with us on the plan of salvation? Exactly. Exactly. This is it. It's very simple. My, my position is we present our understanding in love and we leave people free to believe it or not and we leave them free to present their position, present their evidence, and let everyone come be fully persuaded in their own mind. This is how we do it. We don't want to silence people. We don't want to restrict people. We don't want to uh, deny people the opportunity. We want to fellowship with people. So I would invite people who disagree, come fellowship. It's okay. Let's dialogue. Let's look at the evidence. I don't want to silence you. Sure. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through 29. Can somebody read that for us, please? Galatians, and the lesson asks us right there at the top to read Galatians 3, 26 through 29. If somebody could read that for us, please. It is through faith that all of you are God's sons in union with Christ Jesus. You were baptized into union with Christ, and now you are clothed, so to speak, with the life of Christ himself. So there is no difference between Jews and Gentiles, between slaves and free men, between men and women, you are all one in union with Christ, Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are the descendants of Abraham, and you will receive what God has promised. And what do you hear? You heard the words. What, what did you hear? What was the message? If you're united with Christ, you're his. If you're in union with Christ, you're united with him. I like that. I think that's what I hear, too. This is what the lesson it says in verse 27. Paul says that all those who are baptized have clothed yourselves with Christ. Though all were sinners, their sins had been washed away, their old filthy garments were gone, and they were now clothed, covered in the righteousness of Christ. His life, his perfection, and his character they now claim as their own. All the covenant provinces have been fulfilled in Christ, and now clothed in Christ, they can claim those promises for themselves. They are heirs of the, of the promise first made to Abraham, not because of status, gender, or nationality, but only through faith in Christ. Do we just claim those things, or do we experience those things? Or am I understanding the word claim wrong? The next paragraph. 
Next paragraph. Being clothed in Christ is more than a legal standing with God. Christians are united with Christ. They are surrendered to Him, and through, and though, excuse me, and through Him they are renewed, rejuvenated, and restored. Yes, the, I was going to point out that the lesson points out some very nice things. But notice this paragraph, next paragraph on the next page. Any theology, any verse, version of the gospel that focuses solely on the salvation in cold legal terms alone misses the point. Christianity is all about Jesus, but it's not about Jesus in isolation. It's about Jesus and what he has done for our fallen race through his life, death, and his high priestly ministry. It's not just about a change in our legal status before God. It's about change and renewal and rebirth. They're really doing a great job this time of emphasizing the renewal and rebirth. And if I say, she's not just a woman, she's also the governor. It's not just about our legal status. It's about a change in renewal. She's not just a woman. She's also the governor. What does that sentence structure connote? When you say it's not just, it's also, the not just implies <clears throat> that, it, that, well, she's so obviously a woman. That's a given. That's just a given. We don't even need to talk about that. What we need to talk about is the fact that, hey, she's also the governor. It's a given that it was all a legal problem. We, we had a legal problem. That's a given that a legal problem. But we, what, what's not so obvious is that we also get to be changed. That's the, that's, the, that's the part that we often miss. What do you think? And in pretty much every paragraph, they, 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 they have this phraseology. It's not just a legal problem. We also get transformed. Well, I, I would suggest, and, and by the way, if you, read the, if you read your quarterly, you'll notice that they gave text after text after text about the transforming power of the gospel, the healing, the regenerating, the recreating within. There were no texts about a legal change. They didn't have any. It's always just stated as a given. Why is it always stated as a given? Because it's assumed without evidence. It's a paradigm that they assume, but the evidence is not there for it. This is part of, the, part of that infection we've talked about before in thinking. Uh, my paraphrase of Galatians 3:26 to 29 goes like this. Through the remedy established by Jesus Christ, you reveal his character and are sons of God. For all of you who have immersed your minds and hearts into the truth of God as revealed by Christ have had your characters changed, like a new set of clothing replaced with the character of Christ. Your station on earth is irrelevant. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. For you are all one in Christ. You are all one in character, method, principle, and motive through all Christ has done. If you are Christ-like in heart and mind, then you are one of Abraham's descendants and an heir to all the promises of God. What do you think? I mean, isn't that what it's about? Writing the law in the heart and mind, changing us, transforming us? Then in Tuesday's lesson, Tuesday's lesson, last paragraph, it says, Notice the contrast between the old man and new man. In principle, the old man, the former self, has died, symbolized by baptism, and the new man, a new creation in Christ, results. Here, too, the idea of being clothed, either in Christ or in the new man, arises in the context of Christian behavior. Read the verses that come before and after. We are dealing with a transformation of character, of actions, of a person's whole moral being. The motif, the motif uh, this idea keeps recurring. Yes, it does. It absolutely does. This idea of transformation, regeneration, renewal, 
a law written on the heart and mind, reborn, regenerated, circumcision of the heart. It's, that is the entire gospel message, that we get to have a new character and be healed. As baptized Christians, we are new people in the Lord. To be clothed in Christ isn't a, a metaphor for, for justification, for Christ's righteousness covering our sins and giving us new legal standing before God. Being clothed in Christ means being a new person, one created in righteousness and true holiness. This is very well said. This is exactly what this means. It's a real, actual, transforming change. And I don't know if you all recall, um, but recently I had some dialogue with some people, and they came and talked to you guys, and they held up a book. Do you know their position is that's not what that is? That we get declared to be righteous. Remember the quarterly two ago? We said repeatedly in there, we get declared to be righteous even when we're not. This quarterly is saying, no, it's a real change. This quarterly is right. It's a real change. We actually get a new heart and right spirit. Our motives change. Our desires change. We get healed in the inner person. What we get over time is we get the eradication of old habit patterns and uh, reflexive responses and old character traits get eradicated over time. But the new heart is in an instant. We go from a, a heart that loved selfishness and loved the world to a heart that loves God and wants to be different, even though we have neural networks and old habit patterns and circuits that lead us to do behaviors that we really aren't happy with, and we really wish we weren't doing those behaviors anymore. And every time we do, we get sick of ourselves. Say, Lord, oh, what a wretched man and I who will save me from this body of death. You know what I'm saying? But the heart has changed. Our heart doesn't want to be this way anymore. But we still have some habits we're starting to get. So, and, and so the difference is, we're not talking about behavior. We're talking about a heart that wants to be like Christ. And, and Lord, please change me. I hate this. I hate the fact that I, I, am, I have this carnal nature that tempts me. I don't want to be this way anymore. That's a changed heart. And that's what you see in Romans chapter 4. Abraham trusted God. Remember, the carnal heart is at war with God, it says. But Abraham trusted God, and when he trusted God, he was recognized as being righteous. Well, what happened? In order to go from at war to at trust, there's a heart change. Abraham's heart changed from being at war with God to trusting God. Now, he still had a lot of issues to work out in his uh, experience, his neural network and so forth, but his heart didn't want to be the old man anymore. Does that make sense? Does, do you, does that? Yeah. Okay. Um, now, Paul sometimes, though, had to talk to people who preferred a legal metaphor. And so like Paul, we should, we should speak to people who prefer a legal metaphor. And I've put in the notes today, and I'm going to just run through some of these. How do we, what actually causes our legal status to change? My understanding is it's fulfilling the requirements of the law. Fulfilling what the law requires. Now, the question is, what does the law require? You'll have one model that says the law requires a death penalty be paid, a legal penalty. Listen to these quotes. These aren't mine. These are not my words. First one's out of Zara of Ages, and I'm not going to read... I've got the full paragraphs. I'm just going to read the high, high portions of the paragraphs, but you can see the full paragraphs in the, in the notes. Zarvage 762. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. This man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. Christ came, developed a perfect character. He offers these as a free gift to all who accept them. Uh, second, uh, Review and Herald, April 5, 1898. But the law requires that the soul itself be pure and the mind holy, that the thoughts and feelings may be in accordance with the standard of love and righteousness. What does the law require? That the soul itself be pure. Or a new life, page 32. The divine law requires us to love God supremely and our neighbor as ourselves. Or second selected message is 380. 
That which God required of Adam before his fall was perfect obedience to his law. God requires now what he required of Adam, perfect obedience, righteousness without a flaw, without shortcoming in his sight. God help us render to him all his law requires. Thoughts of the Mount of Blessing, page 54. God offered them his son, the perfect righteousness of the law. If they would open their hearts fully to receive Christ, now get this, then the very life of God, his love would dwell in them, transforming them into his own likeness, and thus, through God's free gift, they would possess the righteousness which the law requires. Are you all hearing it? Over and over, what does the law require? Um, And why does the law require this, by the way? Why does the law require this? What, What law are we talking about? And that is the law upon which life was built to operate. Life, it would be like saying, the law of respiration requires that you breathe. It requires it. It's a requirement. You can't get around it. Yes, because it was built to run that way. The law requires a perfect righteous life because that's the only way life exists in the universe. This is out of uh, Bible Echo, February 15, 1889. His law requires your heart's supreme affection for your maker. It requires you to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Or Review and Herald, March 11, 1884. The law requires that you love your neighbor as yourself. Or Review and Herald, December 16, 1884. God's law requires all of, all of this and more. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Signs of the time, November 23, 1891. His law requires us to love God supremely and as our neighbors as ourselves. I mean, you're seeing the, the requirement here. And there's a couple more that really get interesting. Signs of the time, January 7, 1897. God's law requires that just that justice and right be exercised between man and his fellow man. It requires that we shall not injure our neighbor in his property, in his feelings, in his health, and his good name. It requires compassion for the afflicted, even if he be our enemy. That in all our associations with our fellow beings, we shall show the same love and care that we, sh- we would wish to have exercised toward ourselves. And then, Signs of the Times, February 24, 1898. Christ came to this world to live the law and represent the character of God. That the delusions which Satan had brought upon the world might be dispelled. What do you think those delusions were about? The character of God and his laws. He came to live it. The law is shown to be a representation of God's character. That man may see that, that he must render obedience to the law if he would become a member of the royal family, a child of the heavenly king. This law requires nothing short of perfect spiritual obedience. Now, does that, when you hear that, perfect spiritual obedience, do you get like really scared? I can never do that. Or did you hear the one before that when we trust him, the spirit is poured out. The Holy Spirit comes and takes what Christ has achieved. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We possess this perfect character because Christ has achieved it for us and he reproduces it in us. It is not a work we have to do. It's coming into unity with him. And as we come into one, I pray that they will be one as you and I are one, Father. One in heart, one in mind, one in purpose. So why, doctor, are some of my friends so irritating? Yes. Why are they so irritating? My good Christian friends. Yes. Um, I, I would suggest they're irritating for a couple of reasons. One, because some things are objectively offensive. When they spit in Christ's face and cursed him and beat him, um, he loved them, but I don't think he enjoyed that. Do you think he said, man, this is so enjoyable. This is like that feast that when they washed my feet and, and they had such good food. I enjoyed this just as, it wasn't enjoyable. I'm sure he was offended by that. I'm sure he was repulsed by that. 
So to have the reaction that this is offensive and repulsive doesn't mean you don't love them. It should be offensive and repulsive, shouldn't it? Yeah. And then the second possible reason is they're doing something which approximates or mirrors a defect in your character you haven't overcome. (laughs) No, it's true. I've looked at myself and some people I really don't like, I look and that's because they're so much like me. Maybe put them there for a reason. Yeah, yeah. So it, it could be either way. So you have to step back and say, is this objective offense? Mm-hmm. Okay, some smells smell foul regardless. Okay, they're offensive. Uh, others may just remind you of a perfume or a cologne of a bad time in your life. <laughs> okay, all right. And then, um, and then what about this quote? So but did you hear, by the way, in any of the quotes thus far, and this is the preponderance, if you do a search, and I did, I put in, the law requires, as a quote, to see what came up. And all these quotes like this just get popping up. The preponderance of them. Did you hear the law requires a death penalty be paid? A legal penalty be paid? This is what the, the other model says. The law requires that. So I'm also sometimes accused of being imbalanced. So let me read this quotation to you and see. see. Because we wanna, we wanna, when, you, when you read inspired text, you have to read them all. You can't just select the ones you like. Okay, But then they all have to balance. So I've given you this perspective, and I'm going to tell you the preponderance, the way weight of, of the quotes are the ones I just gave you. But here's one that represents in a very... You'll have to hunt for these, but here's one if you hunt. You can find this. Christ saw the helpless condition of the race, and he came to redeem them by living the life of obedience the law requires, and by paying in his death the penalty of disobedience. He came to bring us the message and means of deliverance an assurance of salvation, not through abrogation of the law, but through obedience made possible by his merits. How do you understand that? Remember, this is, this, I have no problem with this. We're gonna, this. This is just perfectly beautifully stated, if you understand what it means. But you have to harmonize this with all the ones we said before, understanding the nature of God's law. What does it mean? First question. Let me read the words to you again. Uh, living a life of obedience the law requires, and by paying in his death the penalty of disobedience. Does it say a legal penalty? An arbitrary penalty, an imposed penalty, or just the penalty of disobedience? Understand the nature of God's law. What is the nature of God's law? Somebody say it. It's the law of which the universe is built to run upon, okay? So disobedience to that law, what happens? Harmony. Results in death. When Adam sinned, did God's law get changed? No. Did God get changed? No. Did Adam's condition get changed? Yes. So Christ, in order to bring life to man, has to appease God, no. pay a payment to the law, or fix man? Fix man. Okay, there's no payment to the law, no payment to God, no legal payment. What has to happen is man, who is now out of harmony with God's law, and if you want to use this language, under the sentence of death, why are they under the sentence of death? Because the condition of man is no longer loving. We read that quotation earlier. Something has been introduced, an antagonistic uh, agency or principle has been introduced into man, which is no longer in harmony with the law of love. Man is terminal. He's in a terminal condition. He's going to die. 
So how can the human race, and don't think individual you and me person, think species human. Every one of us is a descendant of Adam. Once he degenerated himself, HIV-infected man, HIV-infected woman get together, have a kid born HIV-infected, what did the kid do wrong? Nothing. That's every person since Adam and Eve. We're all born in a terminal condition that we ourselves did not choose for ourselves. So Christ wants to heal this condition. He's got to fix mankind. What does he have to do? Now, God is free to go out and create new creation, and anytime he wants, speak new creations into existence. But that's not humanity. In order to fix humanity, he has to become part of humanity. So Christ comes and partakes of our humanity. He, uh, he was born of a woman under law, Galatians 4.4. 4. The, the Spirit came upon the woman, and he united his divinity with our humanity. And it says that he was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. Right? So he had a nature, and it says in James chapter 1, we are tempted by our own desires. So he had a nature like ours that could tempt him. We see in Gethsemane, he had powerful human emotions. Did he get tempted by his human emotions to avoid the cross? That's to save self. That's selfishness. He was tempted, but with every temptation, he was tempted in every way like us, but without sin. He said no. So the condition in which you are born is a terminal condition. We have a, what's called a carnal nature, a nature that is at enmity with God, at war with his law, a selfish nature. Can that nature have life? No, that nature had to be executed, had to be destroyed. And in Christ, he was the, the God-man, had the two natures, if you will. He was capable of experiencing temptation like us, but he also, being born of the Spirit, his mind and heart was in perfect harmony with the law of love. And so in Christ, as he was at the cross, he was tempted, if you look at the record, to repeatedly save himself. Come down off the cross and we'll believe in you. You saved others, why don't you save yourself? Repeatedly to save self. Did Christ have the power if he wanted to do that? And, what, and if he would have exercised his power to stop death from taking him, who would he have saved? And selfishness wins. And there's a quote, and I don't have it with me, it's in Desire of Ages, where she, Ellen White actually says this very thing, that he was tempted to save himself. And if he would have saved self, the race would have been lost. This is the whole deal. And so, how do we understand this? By paying in his death the penalty of disobedience. Here's what I say. The law requires a life of obedience. There is a penalty for sin, but the law doesn't require sin to be punished only that the infection of sin be destroyed. The selfishness had to be destroyed in the species human so that the life of obedience could be obtained. Thus, lawlessness results in death, and Christ could only restore a life of obedience into humanity by destroying the carnal nature he assumed and thus suffering the penalty sin brought so that through, so, in so doing, he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. He destroyed the very cause of death in humanity at the cross. It's a remedy. It's a remedial process. It's a, it's a fixing, a restoring. Yes? I have a question here. You mentioned that if Christ had saved himself, he could not have saved man. Why is that? Because there would have been no human being that was in harmony with, with God's law. This is a construction design. This is a construction design protocol. What human being is there that's in harmony with God's law? But why couldn't he still heal us? Either way. That would be uh, creating a new creation outside of humanity. I still don't understand why he couldn't still heal us. Um, well, first off, there'd be, there'd be two problems with the premise. One is the actual remedy itself wouldn't exist to apply to our hearts. There wouldn't be a perfect character that the Holy Spirit could regenerate within us. It wouldn't exist. Second, though, but even, even actually preceding that, if he acts in self-interest, then Satan's allegations against God are sustained. And it's not just humanity that now doesn't trust God because he acts selfishly. 
but the sin spreads through the universe and other beings actually believe now Satan is true and God can't be trusted. Because remember, the whole premise was God is selfish. You can't trust him. And that's what caused the war in the beginning. In heaven, a third of the angels, and it would have continued to spread. And so two things were necessary that Christ achieved at the cross. One is to reveal the truth about God, to destroy the lies, when it's back to trust. And the other is to develop a perfect character, which the Holy Spirit takes and reproduces within us. And that's what he did. He did both. Yeah. All righty. Good questions. Good questions. Well, any other questions as we close with prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have sent your Son to do that which we could never do for ourselves. We were born in a terminal state. It wasn't our fault. You know that. And that's why you sent Christ to provide for us what we couldn't provide. Lord, we uh, thank you that your universe runs in such constant, perfect, other-centered love, laws of love. We are so inconsistent and unreliable, Lord. We, but our hearts long to be regenerated and renewed to be like you. We pray for wisdom and discernment. We pray for understanding. But more than that, we pray that your spirit will dwell within us, that our hearts and minds will again be your temple, that you will cleanse and restore us to be like you, and that you will empower us as individuals but also as a group to go forward and share a, a saving message, a truth about you with this world that you may come soon and we will be out of this, this sick and diseased world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.